ми з вами можемо і повинні думати тільки про те, як перемогти. Перемогти на полі бою, на політичному фронті, в інформаційному протистоянні, в економічній площині. Всюди віримо у себе, допомагаємо одне одному, захищаємо інтереси України і знаємо, що буде. August 2022 may just go down in history as the month Ukraine took the war to Russia and challenged Moscow's dominance over the illegally annexed Crimean Peninsula. Bold precision strikes against munitions depots, airstrips, and the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea Fleet have reshaped the narrative of the war, weakening Russia's capabilities and sense of invulnerability, and emboldened Ukrainian resolve. The strikes of August also suggest something else, enhanced Ukrainian capabilities, either in the form of assets inside Crimea or enhanced long-range weapons systems, or perhaps both. Ukraine's guns of August are making their mark. And this week, we'll take a closer look at what may be the reason and what it portends. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at the New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. Always good to see you. You too, Brian. So, so Michael, Ukrainian officials have been saying that the precision strikes inside Crimea are the handiwork of Ukrainian special forces and guerrilla networks operating inside Crimea. And I've been wondering whether or not this was the case or whether this was clever trolling designed to get inside the heads of Russian officials. But in a report for Yahoo News this week that you co-authored with James Rushton, you suggest that Ukraine may be striking Crimea with more advanced weapon systems than we know, knew them to have, perhaps Army tactical missile systems or attackums, a U.S.-made weapon system that has a range of 300 kilometers, moves at a supersonic speed of Mach 3.5, making it all but impossible to intercept. It's also a weapon system that the U.S. has not publicly acknowledged providing to Ukraine. In fact, back in July, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told the Aspen Security Forum that sending those missiles could provoke Russia and potentially instigate World War III. You write, could it be that the United States has covertly supplied these missiles or perhaps invented an artful workaround solution to allow a third party to supply them, thus creating plausible deniability? Michael, walk our listeners through this story. I know you've done some additional reporting since this came out. Um, what, why do you, what, what, do you, what do you think is behind this enhanced Ukrainian ability to strike deep inside Crimea? So uh, just to kind of, give you the the lay of the land here uh, this is now going on two weeks and change when all of a sudden saki air base which is deep in southern crimea so very far from the ukrainian front lines went up in flames about 10 o'clock in the morning uh, there were several explosions and then secondary explosions no doubt caused by ammunition and ordnance blowing up as a result of the whatever it was that struck saki air base uh, we also the foot photographs of uh lazy beach combers, you know, kind of running out of their cabanas, watching this giant fireball. Launch, you know, launching a million memes. Right. And and then all of a sudden, this mass exodus from Crimea along the Kerch uh, Strait Bridge that Russia constructed. 
uh, and the Ukrainian MOD now trolling the Russians who claim this was just the result of a, quote, accident, perhaps due to smoking close to fuel depots or whatever. Anyway, so the, the, the great mystery of how the Ukrainians managed to pull this off. And all of a sudden, you know, the explanations all leaked on background by anonymous officials. Um, one was we used a homemade device. This was, I think, the first explanation given to the New York Times. Then all of a sudden you started to hear these these lines that, uh, well, actually, no, this was a special forces operation featuring partisans and, and what uh, the Ukrainian defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, has called a the resistance force, which sounds very Hollywood, like Sylvester Stallone style. Anyway, so the, the, the idea being they're now suggesting that they have assets in place and commandos or special operators who can, you know, wage attacks in, in a part of occupied Ukraine that has not seen such attacks for the last eight years, right? You know, Russia famously seized and annexed Crimea in 2014, and it's not been the site of much kinetic activity. Um, so I started in the last couple of weeks making phone calls, both to Ukrainian officials and more to the point um, to artillerist U.S. special forces operators, both active and, and retired. And the, the kind of consensus view that I got from the latter, meaning the American side of the ledger, was this ain't no special forces operation. Uh, let's rule out the first thing, which is a, a commando raid. First of all, these things tend not to take place in broad daylight, much less 10 o'clock in the morning on a lazy summer day. They happen under the cover of darkness for the obvious reason of, you know, the, the, the natural, um, you know, covert uh, uh, elements of, of night. Um, and no SOF operator thought that they could um, get over the sort of the revetments of this air base, which is going to be well fortified and guarded again in broad daylight on a weekday, um, plant hundreds of pounds of C4. If you look at the satellite footage that was released of Saki, you're looking at craters that, that suggest that they were made by 500 pound uh, warheads or bombs of some kind. So it's just you can imagine truckloads of of plastique being driven in. Um, by special forces. And again, there was no sign of any kind of engagement. No gunfire was heard. Uh, and even if, you know, you imagine these SOF guys having suppressors or silencers on their assault or automatic weapons, unlike in Hollywood movies, you, you hear these things, right? There was, and there was no report on the Russian side on social media of any kind of active engagement or skirmish, right? Uh, so that was a bit odd. The other thing um, that was suggested as one of the theories as well, maybe SOF use loitering munitions or suicide drones. Uh, the problem with that is most of these things have warheads of 25 to 50 pounds, couldn't create the kind of blast that we saw, again, with the satellite footage, even if you take into account the secondary explosions caused by the ammunition and the FABs that the Russians will have parked there. Uh, and again, I, I, this is not my expertise, which I have none when it comes to military and weapons matters. I'm talking to specialists in the field. Very, very skeptical this was special forces or any kind of partisan activity. Most of the people I talked to, including artillerists, said this certainly looks like a missile strike to me. Um, now, the piece that we did, uh, we basically asked a simple question. OK, what is Ukraine known to possess as of today? Well, clearly, you know, the most celebrated advanced weapon system that the United States has given them is the HIMARS, high-mobility high yeah. mobile artillery systems, right? But the ammunition that, that the U.S. has provided for the HIMARS, at least publicly, has a limited range of, I think, 50 kilometers or so. Uh, and as you mentioned, Jake Sullivan was asked pointedly in July at the Aspen Security Forum, 
could we give them longer-range stuff for the HIMARS, uh, these attackums, which have a range of about 200 kilometers? And he ruled it out, saying this would be seen as too escalatory, and, and we're doing everything we can with security assistance to, quote, avoid walking down or, or slipping into a situation of another world war, right? There's been a sort of weird distinction or kind of legal fiction or fantasy that the U.S. has concocted that we don't want to give them anything that could be used to strike inside Russian Federation territory, to which I and others would reply, well, you can stand at the Ukrainian border of Russia and fire <laughs> a, pistol, a pistol, you know, or a Javelin anti-tank missile into Russian Federation territory. So really what we're saying is we have to rely on the discipline and restraint of the Ukrainians. And thus far, they have used HIMARS only to hit targets inside Ukraine. So we asked ourselves, could there have been perhaps a classified finding authorized by President Biden to um, kind of go in under the radar, as it were, and send them ammunition for these HIMARS that could be used to wage these long-range strikes from? So, you know, in other words, you know, fire it from Odessa or north of Crimea somewhere, and boom, it hits Saki Air Base. And the thing about the HIMARS is the they're modular, right? So you can, you can the, the typical pod with the ammunition, uh, forget the technical designation that we've given them, it's six cylinders and they fire six rockets almost simultaneously, right? Uh, an attackum is a pod just with the attackum because it's a much larger missile in there. So it fires the one attackum. So theoretically they would need either four HIMARS firing four attackums at Saki Air Base or I don't know. I mean, the the attacks took place over the course of about an hour from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. So you, theoretically, they could have reloaded one or two HIMARS with, with attacks. Anyway, the, the problem here is, of course, the U.S. Uh, denies giving them attackums. And, is, and anytime they're asked, the Pentagon, you know, why aren't we doing this? There's a kind of weird weave and bob, you know, response. But anyway, that's not to say, I mean, I also spoke to former CIA officers who said, look, you know, Covert security assistance happens all the time. And by the way, were we to give them something like attackums, Pentagon press flax wouldn't necessarily know about it, right? There, this is this is part of you know the clandestine aspects of of waging proxy war. So anyway, the, the, the attackums was one theory. Uh, then we saw some footage of a high Mars, which we geolocated in Ukraine. And I, and I know this is getting very technical and in the weeds. The back of the pod of this high Mars had an a a a, a, a kind of um, obfuscatory plate or obstruction, right? And that usually indicates the transportation of an attackums or the big brother steroidal version of the attackums, the more modern uh, missile system known as the um, the prism. So we started to wonder, okay, maybe they're they're secretly using these things. But look, there are other theories as to what could have taken place in terms of a missile strike. One of the theories that has seemed now even more compelling to me uh, since I published the piece, and in fact, a Russian military blogger um, pieced this together, is we all remember the Neptune anti-ship missile that the Ukrainians mm -hmm. famously used to sink the Moskva, the, the flagship cruiser of the Black Sea Fleet, going back, I don't know how many weeks now or, or months. So the same weapons manufacturing company that made the anti-ship missile, the Neptune, has long been working on an adaptation of the Neptune for land purposes. So in other words, a homegrown Ukrainian cruise missile. They announced this project, I think, a year or more ago, but there's been no sign of, of this having been developed or tested in the field. It's not something the Ukrainians are known to possess. But keep in mind, Brian, I mean, we're six months into a war, weapons manufacturing domestically in Ukraine is going to be held very close, as, as a very mm -hmm. close secret, top secret kind of program. So, 
you know, now I've started asking questions um, of the Americans and the Ukrainians. And by the way, I, I should, before I say what I'm about to say, I should also tell you that some of the reporting that went into this piece um, was from the Ukrainian side, where I have it on very good authority from government officials that the special forces explanation was a quote, smokescreen. One, one official told me, look, this is bullshit. <laughs> We're putting this out there because it's a psyop. It's gonna make the Russians think, right. you know, that they're, they're occupied territories compete, completely perforated by Ukrainian agents and assets and commandos and so on. So it made me think even more, this is probably a missile. So let's imagine that it's this kind of Neptune-esque cruise missile that the Ukrainians have somehow managed to perhaps affix to their S-24 strategic bombers, right? And fire them uh, as standoff weapon systems. Um, could this have been done completely domestically by the Ukrainian military industrial complex? Sure. Could it have been facilitated or sped along its way by Western security assistance? Um, American or Polish engineers helping with, say, the guidance mm -hmm. system of these missiles. The Poles are particularly good at making more NATO standard uh, weaponry and ammunition compatible with Soviet era kit, in this case, you know, aircraft. So this is now a new theory that I find even more attractive because it would then conform a little more to the strategic comms of what the Ukrainians have said. It's a homegrown device that we used. Okay, technically, yes, even if you've had a little help from your friends from NATO. Um, and also, I think, you know, it, it, uh, it, it sort of verifies or confirms some of the very strenuous denials from the American side that, you know, we've given them the attackums, which is essentially the holy grail of their um, artillery now. This is the one thing that remains on the Ukrainian shopping list from many, many months ago that they simply have not been given, or at least not publicly given. So look, I mean, again, I, I, we were floating some theories, all of which were seemed plausible. And, you know, one of the reasons that, that, that we thought it could be attackums is, as you mentioned in your intro, they, these missiles travel at a speed of Mach 3. So they're supersonic missiles. You don't hear or see an attackum on camera until it is impacted. And then by which point the sound that it would make, you know, traveling faster than the speed of sound, the sound eventually catches up, would be drowned out by the resulting explosion. And in this case, indeed, I mean, of ammunition going up in flames and all that. And so, yeah, it was interesting because, you know, unlike UAV loitering munition strikes we've seen elsewhere, including in Crimea, most of them, I think, waged at night, Russian air defenses are engaged. You can see the bright lights in the sky. People report them. They see them in the, in, in the air. Here we saw nothing. Nothing from the Russian side, nothing caught on tape. Again, you saw the big kind of blast that took place in Saki. It was filmed, it was on camera. Nobody reported seeing anything incoming. So one of the things that now makes me wonder about, let's say the, you know, if it is this Neptune modified missile, those are subsonic. So you do see, you can see cruise missiles traveling in the air. So again, why was none of this detected? Why were Russian air defenses not engaged? Well, one of the weapons that the United States has provided to Ukraine in a very inconspicuous and unpublicized fashion is the HARMS anti-radar batteries, right? Which are now being turning up all over in the field. And the only reason that the Americans, uh, the Pentagon acknowledged actually sending this to Ukraine is the Russians captured the wreckage of one of these HARMS uh, and publicized it on social media. So. Just again, this is all hypothesis speculation. I, I'm just putting together a scenario. Let's say the Ukrainians use their, the harms 
to uh, essentially suppress enemy air defense systems and then launched a homegrown with an asterisk cruise missile that has been invented and rolled off the assembly line at some point since February till now, um, fired from, let's say, the coastline of Odessa. Okay, now we're starting to, to get to a, a state where Ukrainian strategic comms, American strategic comms, and simply what our own lying eyes tell us based on the evidence and the, the visual um, data of this strike, it, it, now we seem to have a, an even more compelling and plausible scenario. And I, I look, I'm in a, a, a chat on Signal with a bunch of artillerists, active and active duty informer, SOF guys, and uh, apart from the attackums, this new theory seems to be um, much more persuasive than mm -hmm. kind of you know Rambo style, you know, right. you know, raid of of an airbase in Crimea or launching of I don't know Alibaba Phoenix Ghost drones and and right. all. So I mean, and the Ukrainians are known to be very good at MacGyvering. <laughs> these Absolutely. weapon systems. Um, so there's no, there's that th th that wouldn't surprise me at all. We've also not just the air, the air. We had several munitions dumps have been hit. We had what appears to be a drone strike hitting the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet. Um, that was publicly acknowledged as a drone strike. We, yeah, we don't know. Um, it could be attackums. It could be a MacGyver, you know, Neptune system. It could be a, a lot of things. But what is beyond dispute is that something fundamental changed in August, right? Would you agree with that? I mean, this, just the psychological and narrative impact of this has been huge. How big is the military impact of this? Did, did, did August change the game? This, I think, you know, we have to take this as, as you know, in conjunction with some of the other big picture uh, announcements or narratives that we've seen in the last several weeks, right? I mean, the, the big fight that everyone on the Ukrainian side has said they're spoiling for is an offensive to retake Kherson, um, the first major population center to fall to the Russians uh, north of Crimea, strategically and economically vital for Ukrainian interests in a way that, frankly, the, the areas in Donbass, um, Lysychansk and Sviatodonetsk were not. Um, but now you're seeing some reporting and skepticism from the expert community. They don't really have the manpower and the capability to wage this kind of counteroffensive. So what would the Ukrainians then do? Max Boot, I think, had a very good piece or op-ed in the Washington Post. Um, I forget the metaphor he used, but essentially it's death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. Bee stings, a thousand bee stings, right? Um, in other words, start to terrorize the Russians with these seemingly miraculous strikes deep in in, inside their rear, basically, hitting targets that simply the, Ukra the Ukrainians simply could not have hit only weeks earlier. And look, I mean, I mentioned HIMARS, I mentioned ATACMS. Do I think that they are, are in possession of or will become in possession of longer range artillery? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the way this security assistance has proceeded thus far is it's all based on proof of concept and proof of Ukraine upholding its end of the bargain. So we give them something, we say, let's see what you can do with it. They defy all expectation, they do something incredible with it, uh, and they learn very quickly. You know, these training uh, modules, or whatever they're called, the absorption rate, I suppose, is the technical term for, for NATO standard uh, weapons. Everything I'm hearing from people who work in security assistance and who are on the ground in Poland tells me um, 
where what we thought would take them eight weeks, they managed to do in three, right? They don't take lunch breaks, they work around the clock. As you said, they're 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 superb at MacGyvering. And remember, this is a country full of engineers. Uh, you know, they know what they're they're doing. So I think it's only a matter of time. If they don't have attackums today, they will eventually get them simply because we have learned to trust them. They're not going to start firing these things into Belgorod or much less right. trying to strike, uh, you know, I don't know, um, wherever inside Deep Russia. inside of Russia, right. Yeah. And remember, the U.S. has affirmed Crimea is sovereign Ukrainian soil, so they have every right to take the war there. Um, and I think, you know, hitting in Crimea, uh, hitting in, in, in places in the so-called LDNR territory that they previously could not reach, Again, it, it you know it sets the cat amongst the pigeons. It makes the the Russians very very demoralized, very worried about their uh, resupply lines, worried about their your headquarters. You're sitting somewhere very far from the front line, which you've occupied for the last seven or eight years, thinking you're you're going to be fine. When all of a sudden you're dead, or, or right. the building goes up in flames, uh, that has a, a a tremendous metaphysical impact on on the way this war could go. And now you've seen today, I mean. Putin has called up, um, you know, uh, I mean, essentially he's trying to replenish or regenerate lost manpower. I don't, I'm just skeptical that Russia has the capability to do that uh, without mass mobilization. Even then, I th I'm skeptical of what they're able to do because nobody really wants, you know, this is fresh sirloin for the meat grinder. No Russian is under any illusions that this is going to be some quick and easy campaign now. Which is why they're recruiting in prisons right now. Exactly. They're empty emptying the jail cells. Uh, you know, mercenary groups such as Wagner are, you know, essentially probably, I have no doubt they have increased the salaries that they had once offered these guys to, to wage war. Um, you know, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel, added to which the Russian uh, military industrial complex is taking a beating thanks to sanctions, microprocessors that are used for their cruise missiles and, and you know, uh, armaments uh, all come from the EU or the United States. Now, that's not to say they won't have some black market workaround solution to acquire these things, but those that building the infrastructure for that takes time too. So look, I think in the long term, I remain pretty bullish on Ukraine's prospects, right? Um, maybe they don't take all of her song, but it does seem like they are making inroads there. I mean, the Antonovsky Bridge, uh, which the Russians require for their resupplies to get from the, uh, you know, the the western bank to the eastern bank of, of the Dnieper River there, uh, has been put out of commission, according to right. Ukraine's southern command. So the bridge hasn't collapsed, but it's been so battered, using HIMARS, by the way, that apparently it, it's it's it's. Uh, I'm waiting to see the Kerch Bridge go down. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. wondering when that's going to happen. And, and you know, in, in fairness to those who think, oh, there's, there's no way Attackums took uh, Saki Air Base, one of the counter arguments I've heard is, well, if they have them, why aren't they firing them all over the place, right? Why don't they take down the Kerch Bridge with them? Why don't they? And you know, a, a simple rebuttal to that is, well, a, we don't know how many they would have been given, and b, you know. These are these are not weapons you're going to use on on the wreck, right? You you want to do it for these kind of massive spectacular attacks mm -hmm. with the fear of God. And I think there, you know, there are other ways that that the Ukrainians could possibly destroy Kerch Bridge, for instance. And indeed, Antonovsky, they're doing just by constantly hitting it. Do you do you think August was a was a was a turning point? I mean, you've you've studied conflicts in the past. Uh, does this look to you to be? Because I'm. 
you know, I'm thinking, you know, the, the guns of August basically seem yeah. to have changed this war um, in, in, in the Ukrainians' direction. Do you, do you see it that way? I mean, I think, uh, yeah, you know, the, 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 the front line has completely, well, okay, let's not say completely, but it has more or less stabilized. Um, and I think HIMARS made all the difference here. Uh, HIMARS, in addition to uh, CRAB, um, you know, self-propelled artillery systems, the Caesars from France. When I was in Kyiv, this was before they got the HIMARS. Uh, every Ukrainian military official I talked to, including deputy defense minister, said uh, the crabs and the, the Caesars are sort of the weapon of choice here in this in this battlefield. And now, obviously, you know, with the HIMARS, every time they fire it, it's HIMARS or clock. Um, you know, Ukrainians love these weapons. And yeah, I mean, it's it, it is we don't really have a, a, an ability to tell or I certainly don't have an ability to tell just the extent to which they have interdicted Russians' uh, logistical capability, particularly in the East. But my guess is, given the targets, fuel, ammo depots, uh, command centers, yeah, they, they just don't have the capacity to push forward. And look, that's a good thing. But ultimately, I mean, the, the fact of the matter of the, the current map of Ukraine is Russia still controls 20% of this country's territory, up from, what, 8% as of right. February 23, so they gain 12%. There does need to be a pushback at some point. Right. Uh, and whether that's, you know, forcing Putin through this kind of combination of constant bombardment, psychological terror, sanctions, diplomatic isolation, et cetera, et cetera, to start to withdraw, from certain places, which I don't really think he's going to do. Although he's uh, thinking uh, a pause right now. He's yeah, there's only, yeah, a pause, a pause, right. Um, but that's just simply, I mean, it's 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 almost a fait accompli. The pause was forced by the Ukrainians mm -hmm. and he's dressing it up as something that was long planned strategically or whatever. But yeah, look, I, I think we're, we're past the point of worst case scenario, which is all of Donbass gets gobbled up and the Russians then forced the Ukrainians into making concessions and doing the things that, frankly, there is no popular will for the Zelensky right. administration to do. Upwards of, what, 85% of the country, based on the last poll I saw, support prosecuting the war and support the liberation of all of Ukraine, uh, and also completely categorically repudiate land for peace, meaning right. giving up territory. So, so long as he's got that, you know, that level of, of support, I think... Yeah, they're going to keep asking for new kit. Um, you know, remember, Reznikov said to the Financial Times several weeks ago, I am very confident we will eventually get the attackums. Now, he has a very close working relationship with Lloyd Austin. I doubt Reznikov would have said that unless he'd been given some indication that, okay, you know, maybe down the line, this is something we're going to consider. This is something, Michael, I wanted to talk to you about because this has been something that I've been, it's been bugging me and I, I think about it. I mean, you look at the West's almost schizophrenic uh, defense assistance policy yeah. here. I mean, remember when we were, ar those quaint days when we were arguing about whether we should give the Ukrainians javelins. Yeah. Uh, now, people like you and I were saying, of course, not just javelins, more than javelins, but that was once a debate. Remember the debate about the Polish MiGs? Well, I've re I just read that there's going to be some Slovak MiGs sent, 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 sent to Ukraine. Um, yeah, and, I mean, and, and, and the HIMARS were a debate at one point, and now the attackums are a debate. I, um, I remember consulting, 
you know, very uh, capable and and senior military analysts who were telling me, I mean, who had served, by the way, who were telling me, oh, that we can't give that to the Ukrainians. They won't know what to do with it. And it'll take ages to train them up. And, you know, they have real problems with their logistics. How are they going to keep these things maintained and re resupplied in the field and blah, 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 blah. And again, time and time again, the Ukraine, we tell the Ukrainians, you cannot. And they say, watch us. And then they, we eat our words, right? And and look, the other side of it too, I mean, you mentioned the whole MiG-29 debacle. I follow that very closely. And that was essentially the Polish cabinet shooting its mouth off when it had agreed to do something covertly and ended up publicizing it. Mm -hmm. um, there are very creative workaround solutions that, again, don't get as much attention. They're not A1 in the New York Times. But, you know, Jack Deutsch, who's a very good defense um, journalist at foreign policy, had this piece several weeks ago, I think we cited in our piece in Yahoo, about how the United States essentially um, hired a third party to dismantle, I think it was SU-24 uh, strategic bombers, if not SU-25s, and, and also uh, attack helicopters. Dismantle them someplace in Europe, drive them into Ukraine, where Ukrainian engineers simply put them back together again. And it's like, oh, we didn't give them planes. We gave them, quote, spare parts. Spare parts, right. <laughs> you Basically, you created a, a security assistance program of a chop shop, you know, right. Right. and then allowing the Ukrainians to rebuild it. That's that's clever. That's that's creative. And look, I mean, I'm of two minds with this, right? And, and I kind of go back and forth. On the one hand, I want Ukraine to succeed. I want it to get the things that it needs, and I know that it can wield effectively. But on the other hand, you know, I'm a narcissistic, egomaniacal, greedy, greedy journalist who wants scoops. And also, it's in the public interest to know what the hell the United States right. is doing, right? Uh, and and I, I actually don't agree with the strategic communications justification of this has to be a top secret program. I said, no, if you guys, A, are getting attackums, the U.S. should allow you to sing it from the rooftops because that's psychologically menacing to the Ukrainian or to the to the Russians. And B, if you're kind of creating this homebrew Neptune cruise missile system, also very very upsetting to Russia, uh, and and even more terrifying that most of it came from your own industry, right? You're getting a little bit of guidance or or assistance from from the West, but so what? This is a this is a, a domestic Ukrainian product, and it was built in a time of war, so. Again, oh, this speaks very well to Ukrainian ingenuity and and capability. So, look, I understand some things require operational security. Uh, for instance, you know, the Russians could find this out and start bombing factories or or storage facilities and all of that. But then again, you know, how much stuff have we sent in the last six months? How much stuff has just been announced we are going to be sending in the next year or two? And how much of it have the Russians managed to interdict? Nothing, not a nothing. single supply. To my knowledge, nothing. Yeah. Nothing, nothing. Certainly, nothing reported or publicized, and by now there would be evidence of it. Um, so uh, I don't know. I mean, I I feel like you know part of the conversation you and I keep having is we like to worry too much, and then we do something very minuscule or not so minuscule, moderate. The Russian response is crickets or right. flat out denial that it even happened, and then we're like, oh, interesting, and then we we up the ante ever slowly, 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 right? I, I would just say up, up it more, you know? I mean, already I'm hearing there's a long-term program to essentially give F-16s to the Ukrainians, modernize their air force. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, there's a, there's a big issue here because you can learn to fly an F-16 in, I don't know, two or three years, 
the Ukrainians will probably do it in six months or, or less, right? Because they're the Ukrainians. But to learn how to fight in an F-16 can take a decade or more, right? I mean, the, the man hours you have to clock behind one of these airframes. But, I mean, look at the big picture here, Brian. Like, this debate, NATO, sh should it or shouldn't it, will it or won't it join NATO? I'm sorry, Ukraine, will it or won't it join NATO? Ukraine has, be has been given, has been turned into a NATO standard military without formally acceding yeah. to this alliance. It doesn't need to join NATO anymore. It's it's already kind of in NATO at, at the moment. It doesn't have without, to select without Article like, Five, but yeah, right without Article Five. But they don't even need that because, I, as I said, I think in a, a couple other episodes ago, single-handedly they have done that which Article Five was meant to do collectively, right? Right. Um, and then we look. We still don't know, and we're not going to know for many moons, maybe even decades, just the extent to which. American intelligence sharing and, you know, kind of covert military assistance has, has taken place here. My guess is there's a lot more than, than meets the eye at the moment, even with all the bureaucratic foot dragging and, you know, escalatory, you know, rationalizations. Yeah, no, and, and you know, future historians are going to study this war for certain oh. and you're writing the first draft of that history as we speak in real time. It's, it's, um, and I mean, look, it's for, for, for NATO, particularly for the United States, I mean, and this, this sounds very cynical, but again, you have to think like a government does. You don't think like a human being here. Um, this is a proving ground for Western military capability. We are seeing what the Russians can do, and more to the point, we're seeing what they can't do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, so I, I was talking just yesterday to uh, to an active duty artillerist, and he said, you know, realize if 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 this wasn't attackums strike on Saki Air Base, this is the first time an attackums has gone up against Russian air defense, and imagine the intelligence that will have been gleaned from this mm -hmm. one operation from that. And right. even if it's not attackums, we've still gleaned a, a, a shit ton of intelligence about right. how the Russians fight. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, again, it sounds cynical because the lives of millions of people are at stake. And, you know, but this, this unfortunately, this is this is one of the justifications for for continuing with security assistance is to see what they can do. And that teaches us lessons in terms of what we could do if, God forbid, the United States should ever find itself in a, a war with Russia. Right, right. Well, on that, on that note, we'll segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and shift gears to look at a high-profile assassination in an elite Moscow neighborhood and what it might mean. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from New York City is the one and only Michael Weiss, a veteran journalist who's the news director at New Lines Magazine, a contributing editor at the Daily Beast, and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Вічна слава усім нашим воїнам, вічна пам'ять усім, чиє життя забрали 
окупанти. Слава Україні! So Daria Dugina, the daughter of the prominent Russian nationalist Alexander Dugin, was killed by a car bomb in Moscow's elite Lublovka neighborhood last week. The Kremlin quickly blamed Ukraine security services, saying the attack was carried out by a Ukrainian woman who had a 12-year-old child and her cat in tow. You really can't make this stuff up. She then escaped to Estonia driving 750 kilometers in a Mini Cooper, conveniently leaving behind her Azov Battalion ID. Um, it's uh, time to watch the Italian job again. The Mini Cooper detail really got my attention in the cat. Um, I the same thing when I heard that. It's, of course, a bizarre and implausible narrative that makes no sense whatsoever. But let's suspend disbelief for a minute and imagine that it's true. Um, this means that Ukraine's SBU must be one of the most fearsome intelligence agencies in the world, yeah. um, filled with James Bonds and George Smiley's, with assets to strike inside one of Moscow's most secure and elite neighborhoods. If the Kremlin's version is true, then the Russian security services are beyond incompetent, and the Russian elite should be very, very afraid. Adding to the bizarre story, a previously unknown group of anti-Putin partisans, the Russian Republican Army, has claimed responsibility for the bombing and said more were on the way. Michael, what do you make of all this? Well, I just don't know. I mean, I, you know, my first reaction, the FSB solves a political murder within the space of 48 hours. It took them years to even come up with some fall guy for Boris Nemtsov's assassination, right. shot in the back six times within steps from the Kremlin, where CCTV footage um, should have captured everything, but didn't. Um, it's take It took them years to solve the investigations into the murder of uh, Novaya Gazeta, investigative journalists, and so on and so forth. But 48 hours, they cracked the mystery. It's a woman with long blonde hair traveling with her 12-year-old daughter, the family <laughs> and driving a Mini Cooper, you know? I mean, I, 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 I tweeted out, I'm like, okay, you know, like in the annals of KGB Mokroidela, like the Georgi Markov umbrella assassination, you imagine the, the minutes of that meeting, it's like, right, you've got the umbrella, check. You've got the rice and pellet, check. Here's your Cocker Spaniel. Enjoy London. Who goes into the field with a cat? I mean, don't give me that, that that was just part of the charade. I mean, you don't put your family members, um, I mean, a cat, whatever, but you, the, the 12-year-old daughter makes no sense. Uh, she moved into the same building as Dugina, according to that, I think the Driving investigation. Driving to the Estonian border undetected? Driving to the Estonian border <laughs> undetected. Uh, they inspect the car. Oh, and then, by the way, the, the one thing that she leaves behind in Moscow, not the cat, <laughs> but her, her National Guard ID, which has, of course, markings of her having been in the Azov regiment. Um, and then somebody on Twitter did a very good um, forensic deconstruction of the photoshopped image of all of that, showing where there has been obvious doctoring of the photograph and everything. So, look, it, it, it doesn't make any sense because it's not true. The Russian government is lying about it. Um, are they are they being opportunistic? In other words, did somebody kill her other than themselves and they've just come up with this patsy, which they hastily cobbled together? I've thought that the, the fact that they said, oh, she went to Estonia was their way of trolling because, of, of course, the Estonians had been, as we the last time I was on your show, we talked all about the Estonian yeah. sort of defense of Ukraine, security assistance, and now Prime Minister Kaya Kallas's demand for a tourist visa 
uh, moratorium for Russians, uh, which is very controversial and probably is not going to happen at the EU level, but there you have it. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's weird. You know, I, I quoted one, I wrote a piece about this too, and I quoted one very senior Western intelligence officer who said, certainly looks like an FSB false flag operation to me. Uh, and that person um, mentioned the Moscow apartment bombings in 1990. Mm -hmm. so certainly not beyond the can of these guys to, you know, kill someone. Uh, including someone who is seen as being, I mean, she, you know, the, the Dugans are not, I don't know, I, I, there's a lot of controversy about yep. her father's relationship to the powers that be. I mean, obviously, the book he had written in 1997 on geopolitics was a bestseller. And I mean, I ranked John Dunlop at Hoover Institution very highly and said that basically every no book has had an impact on the military, the security services and the status in Russia like this book has had. OK, be that as it may. I've never been quite sold on the idea that Dugin is somehow the Rasputin or the Putin, real Putin's brain. No, that his influence no, on Putin I has mean, been overestimated. Yeah, you know, I mean, yes. In in 2009, he sort of anticipated something kicking off in Crimea and Donbass, but that doesn't require great oracular abilities. I mean, you know, Putin, who famously said in 2005, four years earlier. He thought the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, has always had an eye on, in some form or another, reconstructing part of that empire. Um, there was always going to be a confrontation with Ukraine, particularly given Ukraine's westward tilt. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't think that Putin sort of hangs on every word and, and sermon of Alexander Dugin to determine what state policy or foreign policy is going to be. That said, I mean, I, I would call Dugin Putin's id. He's kind of all primal instinct, no mm. thought out, coherent plan of action. And, and indeed, I mean, Putin has sounded more like Dugin as time has gone on, particularly with respect to describing the West as this terminally diseased and degenerate civilization, you know, the, the, the harping on about cancel culture and LGBT rights and all of that. I mean, Dugin was there first, right? This was his essentially Nazi view of, of, of the world. There's, there is a clash of civilizations and, you know, Eurasia must rise at, uh, at the expense and uh, on the, the kind of fallen ashes of a decadent and depraved West. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's weird. Now you get all the theories as to why, if the government did it, why would they have done it, right? Were they aiming for Alexander and they, whoops, they got the daughter because they switched cars at the last minute? cars, right. Is it that he had some falling out? with his friends in the FSB. I mean, there could be a lot going on behind the scenes. I'm sure there is, there always is, that we haven't- Could be a business or political dispute unrelated. You right. know, that, that, that's possible. Or, um, you know, I mean, again, coming back to the Moscow apartment bombings, you know, a, a, a security service that's willing to blow up its own citizens to furnish a pretext for some act of foreign adventurism, in that case, the Second Chechen War. They could very easily decide to pop Daria Dugina and turn her into the Joan of Arc of the Z movement, which already there's kind of rumblings as that happened. I saw today, in fact, some Russian in Ukraine uh, put for Daria Dugin on his tank or something. So who knows? Who knows? I mean, it's just, you know, as surreal as Russia has been for the last 20 years, right now I feel like it's we're in a kind of twilight zone atmosphere. You know, I, I don't have... Yeah, no, it's in David Lynch territory. <laughs> it's in David Lynch territory, and you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm glad that I have an editor because I was, I was kind of inclined to end the piece with the Tikhachev, um, 
you know, the, the poem, Russia cannot be grasped with the mind. Right, know, right. Only believed in. I mean, well, it, especially, it especially cannot be a grasp with the mind now. There's no logical conclusion for any of this. I mean, including and especially invading Ukraine at this time. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, um, I, mean I, I three. there's three broad working theories you can work from, from here. Basically, yeah. um, one is that it was a business or political dispute unrelated to anything that now Russia, for some reason, is 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 attempting to 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 leverage or exploit. The second, of course, is the false flag operation, and the least likely is that Ukraine. I, I just don't see any reason why Ukraine, if Ukraine has those kind of assets in Moscow, this is not what you're going to use them on. Yeah, right? I saw and, you tweet that. It's, it's a very good point. I mean, you know, okay, let's say it's the Ukrainians, so they can kill in 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 a in very in, in a Tony suburb of Moscow, and they choose this person as opposed to somebody else. They don't want to go after like a Peskov or, you know, right. uh, you know. Uh, I, I mean, mean everybody yeah. important lives in that neighborhood. That's exactly. That's, that's, um, that, that's, that's where exactly. everybody has their villas. Um, regardless of what was behind this, what is undeniable, though, is that the psychological impact this is going to have on the Russian elite, because this, to if I... If I'm not mistaken, I, I can't recall an assassination of somebody who was pro-regime. Can you? Yeah, I can. No, I, and that's, I mean, I saw a lot of people online making the comparison with Kirov in 1934. Yeah. But I mean, Dugina, nobody, I mean, honestly, people in Russia didn't really know who she was. She posted under a pseudonym. She went on to telly a couple times and mostly on YouTube. Um and other than that, I mean, so no, but Kirov, I mean, he was the head of the Communist Party in Leningrad, yeah. very charismatic, very popular, a great second best orator the Soviet Union had next to Trotsky, a member of the Politburo, and was a Stalinist, even though Stalin saw him as a threat to his power because they disagreed over one important thing, the the, the death sentence for Ryutin, for the right. platform, right. calling for Stalin's removal. Um Neither Dugin nor Dugina hold a candle to Kirov in terms of popularity right. and, and recognizability. So it's a weird one. But yes, you're right. I mean, because she support, I mean, if anything, you know, she, the family is more hawkish than Putin. They think he yeah. hasn't gone yeah. far enough. They think this war of conquest should have been over already, that we should have salted the earth with Ukraine. And, you know, again, the Eurasian empire rises no matter what. Um, so uh, who knows? Maybe that was the explanation uh, that they felt um, they didn't want this kind of right, you know, sort of ultra reactionary kind of menace telling them that essentially they're a bunch of wusses and kittens, that they're not. So Putin's not, sending a not, message to his right flank in this yeah, version of events, yeah. basically. Basically, keep, keep it quiet. And because, you know, this is this could happen to you, too. I mean, again, plausible, but we, we just don't know. We're, we're yeah, gonna, yeah. The other thing that is a head scratcher for me is that the the Kremlin's version, the FSB's version, is, I mean, can't they tell that this looks absurd? Do they just are they, are they intentional? Are they trolling by putting out something so absurd? I mean, it's it details that didn't have to be in there. Like, why include the cat? Why include why a Mini Cooper? You know, to to, to inspire a bunch of tweets about about the Italian job. I mean, it's it. Why put out something if you're gonna do a false flag? Yeah. Why put something out so utterly ridiculous and easily just ridiculable? I mean, maybe one better than that. Maybe they didn't even come up with the, the the patsy until after the bombing, and then they just decided, right? Well, who do we know that's left Russia that has a Ukrainian 
identity or we can link somehow. And they just, oh, here's a woman. Oh, perfect. She went to Estonia. What do we know about her? Here's where she lived. This is what she we, we saw her doing in the, at the border guard uh, with the car and everything. Oh, she's got a cat and a kid. Ah, who cares? And then just Photoshop an ID and that's the, the rest of it. I mean, the FB stopped caring what the outside world seems to think about things a long time ago. I think this is all designed for internal consumption. And even Russians who are going to call bullshit on it are in no position to speak out and say this is this is this is just absurdity. This is nonsense. So in a way, I, again, it, it goes to sort of the nihilistic heart of this regime now. Right. They don't seem to care about persuasion. Um, you know, I always found it fascinating. Dugin, the neo-Nazi par excellence of contemporary Russia, you know, denouncing the Nazi state of Ukraine. Right. This is the narcissism of the tiny difference. I mean, this, this guy's the, 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 the Nazi state with a Jewish president and Jewish defense Jewish, minister. Right. And, and you know, that's the thing. I mean, it's it's you know, he if if anything, if, if Ukraine were a proper fascist or Nazi state, Dugan should be supportive of it. And not <laughs> right, right. that's where his his great Russian chauvinism, I guess, trumps his own um, political ideology. But uh, yeah, it's it's just it's a, it's another weird one. No, it it it, it is a weird one. I imagine we'll have a reconstruction of the Saki Air Base attack long before we know who and why Darya Dugin. Yeah, yeah. And if you are if you're uh, doing a follow up on your Yahoo News piece, send me a link and I'll include it in the show notes. Um, just uh, just uh, I don't know if you're coming out with something in the next couple of days. Um, on that note, we'll wrap it up as we that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from New York City has been veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at the New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Thanks, Michael, as always, for an enlightening discussion. Anytime, Brian. All right. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.